Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're about to experience the other society. Prepare yourself for an independent, unscripted, and unedited conversation about the past, present, and future of the relationship between technology and humanity. Our goal is to share information and inspire action so that technology can be utilized to make our world a better place for everyone. The Other Society is not just a vision, it is a movement, and you can join it. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. And Marco. Sean. Here we are. Tri we the are. trifecta. Yeah, number three. Three number is a charm, three. as they say, right? <laughs> Third time's a charm. Does that, yeah. does that mean we didn't quite get it right the first few times? Uh, to be honest, I'm not even sure we're going to get it this time. We're, we're, <laughs> we're trying, you know, but as often happened here on uh, ITSP Magazine, on the other society, it's about the conversation. It's about thinking and it's about sharing our thoughts with other people that hopefully will start thinking as well. And not just the experts, but also and especially the people that live on this planet and that deal with uh, the digital uh, stuff that we have in our hands, in our house, in our cars. I mean, we were surrounded by it now, and uh, I think it's too late to go back, and we got to find a way to not only live with it, but prosper with it. So uh, this is why we're here, Sean, and uh, Kevin is with us again. Yeah, we, <clears throat> we, we have many topics we discuss on the other society. Some are very heavily rooted in technology, others a uh, little less. This one uh, sits pretty squarely <laughs> within the, the technical realm. And we're, we're going to be looking at ethics in a digital society. And we've had two conversations on this topic, and I suspect we'll have many more. Where we Initially, we looked at the 101 of what ethics in a digital society means. And then we looked at how technology plays a role uh, in helping us prepare for the society and, and build a society that's, that's ethical. And uh, today we're going to look more at the social impact of that. And uh, Kevin, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you on. And as you did with the other two panels, uh, we had some amazing guests today. So who, who do you have? Well, first off, who, who is Kevin for those who haven't? Who are you? From you yet. Why, why are you here? And then please do a quick, quick round of intros uh, for our esteemed guest today. Yeah, yeah. You can't ask a philosopher who he is and why he's here. Not, not, <laughs> not, not if you're going to tail the time to 45 minutes. No, you uh, don't have that time. You don't have that kind of time. I'll avoid the existential crisis for this afternoon then. And, uh, and uh, thanks, guys, for the introduction. Yes, yeah, so I'm Kevin McNish. Uh, I'm a consultant with Sopristeria, a former academic philosopher, still involved in that in that world somewhat, um, and really focusing on ethics and technology from a consulting perspective these days. But absolutely thrilled to have the guests that we've got on today's program. As you say, we've had some some great guests throughout this series. Um, and today, really pleased to introduce Letitia, Olivia, and Philip. Uh, I'll let them introduce themselves as they can be far more eloquent about their backgrounds and their skills than I will. Uh, so, Letitia, as your bottom left of my screen, we'll start with you. You could just Good give evening. us a few words about yourself. Yes, thank you very much, Kevin. Thank you all. Uh, my name is Letitia Duampama. Um, I'm an ethics, integrity, and compliance professional working for multinationals or big business. Such roles do exist in big business. I know people are surprised. And it's not a legal role, so you do fo focus on the ethics and integrity. Um, I come with basically 12 years' experience of implementing or operationalizing ethics and integrity in a number of industries, pharma, mobile telcos, um, and financial services, uh, predominantly across Africa, but also across Europe as well. Um, and so I'm looking forward to the conversation. Great. Thanks, Letitia. Olivia. Thanks, Kevin. Um, so I'm Olivia Gamblin. I am an AI ethicist myself, um, and I specialize in working with entrepreneurs as well as being an entrepreneur myself. So I'm, I wear two hats of AI ethicists and founder of Ethical Intelligence. Ethical Intelligence is an AI ethics uh, advisory firm. So we, we provide ethics as a service. 
um, and we supply companies, especially startups, with ethics boards. So we've got a lot of hands-on experience working with cutting-edge tech and all of the crazy questions that come along with it. Great. Thanks a lot, Olivia. Good to have you here as well. And Philip, finally. Yeah, I'm, I'm a professor in the ethics of technology at the University of Twente, and um, I've been engaged for many, many years uh, with the ethics of digital technologies. And uh, more recently, the past six, seven years, uh, mostly focused on AI ethics. That's where everybody is right now, um, in the digital realm, at least for ethics. And, uh, but currently also exploring other um, avenues. Uh, maybe we'll get to talk about that. But uh, in any case, I've been uh, all over the place for digital technologies. Uh, I've studied uh, Internet of Things, kind of the early internet and the transition to uh, Web 2.0. Um, yeah, virtual reality, many topics. Excellent. Thanks, Philip. So, yeah, great, great to have you all here. Uh, really looking forward to the conversation. Uh, and I'm going to leap in with a fairly heavy one um, straight off, because some of the things we've been talking about so far through this has, has been sort of principles that keep coming up around ethics, uh, whether it's AI ethics or digital ethics, ethics and technology more generally. And, and, you know, nobody wants to create a technology that is racist or that is biased in some way or, or whatever. Nobody's, we hope, going out there and deliberately creating a system like that. Uh, but one of the challenges that's come up in, in earlier conversations has been how people interpret what's meant by privacy or, or even by power and how we deal with that as a group. Now, one of the things that I'm not sure you guys all know, I, I know because I know you all, is that we've all got on this call, everybody's got quite a large amount of uh, international experience. So Philip studied in America, um, now working in the Netherlands and traveling widely as a philosopher. Olivia studied in Scotland, I believe, wasn't it, Olivia? Um, Although being America and Letitia, as she said, spent years living and working in Africa. Um, and I've lived and worked in the States and across Europe as well as the UK now. Um, uh, Marco and Sean, I'm sure you've got your own stories as well. Um, so what I want to sort of draw on then is given that breadth of experience, how have you experienced, have you seen ethical issues being treated differently around the world? And, and thinking particularly, if you can, to narrow that in on digital or technological ethics issues. Is there much of a difference with how we approach ethics? Um, and Letitia, I'll, I'll kick that one to you first. Um, I think, okay, from a, if I look at it, emerging markets concept context or Africa, definitely there is because um, it is multidimensional. And so whatever technology is being put out there, whether it's coming from the private sector or the public sector, essentially the ethical question will, will, be, will involve both civic society or civil society. It involve, I guess, what the West will call informal um, elements of society, what we will call traditional structures, as in old chieftaincy systems, which operate fundamentally and are very powerful in addition to the population and then the private sector and the public sector. So um, all of those factors will come into the mix to actually um, carve out what would be the quote unquote desirable ethical outcome or indeed um, what represents an undesirable outcome. So I'll give an example and I think this is probably quite a common one which maybe people know from the West. So I mean the whole concept of something like mobile money, which everyone now takes for granted. Um, what they don't realize is that when that started in East Africa or Kenya, or, um, and then subsequently went to West Africa, the, the joint effort <laughs> that went to make that work was not just the mobile telco companies. They spent years out in the rural areas in kiosks with their marketing teams, actually building up the trust of the population because um and the other thing was also then they catered to the multiple levels of society because we're dealing with totally illiterate up to you know your educated business people and the the telco companies worked that for years and decades and so they're out there in the streets and the rural areas and the communities 
similarly, um, then you engage um, the governments because then they have to think about what is the, the framework that's going to ba basically manage this and what are the outcomes we're going to get. Um, and so then that was a conversation between private sector and public sector, but taking into account what came through focus groups, et cetera. Um, and then you get the promotion of the traditional chiefs, et cetera, um, and traditional formal structures who have an input in terms of, okay, you're rolling out this technology, not just in terms of use and impact on our people, but in terms of infrastructure, et cetera, what does this look like for us? And we have some issues and this has to be put in the mix. So um, forming a an ethical outcome from a digital technology in an African context um, by necessity, whether the private sector likes it or not, and even if it's foreign private sector, and I use the example of mobile money just to demonstrate that, it has necessitates all levels of society. Mm. Well, it's great to see that that level of stakeholder engagement is going on. I'm sure there have been plenty of cases where, as you say, by, while it may be required of necessity, I'm sure there are cases where it hasn't been employed and presumably people have fallen flat on their faces when that's happened. Um, yeah, I mean, I think probably one element that actually is quite current and it's actually quite current internationally and, and locally is the whole concept of like uh, digital IDs. Um, I had the experience today, it was quite timely actually, a report came across my desk that was something like the World Bank's paving the way to digital hell <laughs> across <laughs> Africa for digital IDs. <laughs> and this actually came from uh, New York University, um, mm -hmm. I think the Center for Human Policy or whatever. But um, that that's a prime example. I mean, wherever the digital ID context came out of, uh, to the populace, if I can say this, it, as someone who comes from a country where they've tried to implement it, it must have come from either some development organization or the central cent central bank or the government or whatever, but it is something that's just come. <laughs> and then a whole population resist it, are suspicious of it and question it because it's apart from the privacy element, there is also a geopolitical element to it. Everyone's thinking, why is whoever is funding this, where whatever international aid is coming, so interested in the populace's digital, you know, and these often include biometric um, things. So that digital IDs and some of them are falling flat and the one in Kenya has just been recently ruled unconstitutional um, because there wasn't that engagement. And then the governments are scrambling, trying to make the private sector who've built up trust in whether mobile money or whatever, be in the, the enforcers of, so they're trying to basically roll off the trust that's been established on a different, you know, technology that's been rolled out. So that, I mean, digital IDs are an example of, you know, mm. in many countries where it's beginning to fall flat because that, the engagement wasn't there. Yeah, thanks. So that that's a yeah, it was a very interesting report that when I I read it as well. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of it picked up on the Aadhaar system in India around how that's been implemented and and some of the challenges that that's thrown up as well. So Philip, how about yourself? Because I know you've dealt, you've looked at privacy across numerous different cultural contexts in the past, um, and and some of the issues that might have come up there. So what what's your sort of your view on ethics and international application? Yeah, well, there are differences between countries and regions, for sure. Um, those are perhaps becoming a little bit less through globalization. But uh, if I would dare to make a very coarse generalization, uh, at least my research shows that um, in the West, the kind of ethics we have in the West is individualist and it's concerned with individual rights. Uh, while as in many non-Western regions, especially in, in um, Africa, Southeast Asia, uh, at least the, the kind of original um, ethical beliefs and, and values are more concerned with uh, the welfare of the community. And then ethics becomes uh, about virtue so individuals are supposed to be virtuous given their role in society and contribute to the community according to the role they possess in it uh, that that also matches more with with a more hierarchical conception perhaps whereas uh, in um, some of the more western societies you have this very liberal egalitarian conception that everybody is equal so 
there's not going to be any differences in the virtues that people are going to be supposed to, to be having. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. So, so some may, there may be some generalizations you're saying, which can be drawn. Um, but, but certainly that Western perspective being quite individualistic. And again, that's something which we've talked about in former sessions as well, that when we talk about privacy in the West, it tends to be a very, yeah, privacy of the individual. And we'll come back to GDPR in a moment, but that, that's certainly an example, I think, of a very individualistically focused um, piece of legislation. But how about you, Olivia? What have been your experiences in that field and, and in a way i know you deal a lot with silicon valley so you almost kind of have a very microculture going on there as well it is a microculture that's the best <laughs> way to put it it's its own bubble um and i can definitely bring a bit of a perspective here in terms of i know europe and, and north america are both western cultures uh, but there is a difference between the application even in the states and especially the silicon valley versus at the european approach so in the States, what I see a lot of um, is ethics being called responsible AI. So right now that's our trend, it's responsible AI. And it is looked at like a technical problem that we have to solve. So when I do see American companies trying to approach responsible AI, trying to embed ethics, uh, they go for tools. It's a tool-based a tool-based solution where they want a dashboard, they want a, a, a Python package, they want um, a governance software. They just want something that's easy to plug, plug in and walk away from and just have it run. And the struggle that's happening there is the lack of understanding that responsible AI, ethical AI, whatever you want to call it, is not just a technical problem. There are technical elements, but they're missing this socio-cultural layer that needs to complement. Because if we're only solving this as uh, fairness metrics without understanding what fairness is in the context of how we're applying it, then we're, we're tracking a lot of numbers for no reason. Um, that's the American side. And, and I know I sound a bit critical, but you know, we're, we're getting there. We, we, this three years ago, I would have said they were doing nothing. So we're getting somewhere. Um, but on the European side, by the European Union and just the, the different European mindset, conversations around values and approach, the communal approach to values is a lot more common. So the idea of ethics is not so foreign. You can go to a company and say, are you practicing ethics? And they'll, they'll usually say yes, maybe not necessarily in, in hard detail, but it is a natural part of the conversation. From the European side though, they are taking a much more risk-focused approach uh, as well as a regulatory approach. So we've got the major regulations in AI coming out and that's how they're approaching. We're gonna make this ethical by requiring people to do different checks. Um, I'm not gonna say one is better than the other. We're gonna see how they all work out and they definitely influence each other. But even, even down to Europe versus California, it's already a very big difference in terms of approach. Yeah, uh, interesting. And I, I think, yeah, I know one of the things with GDPR uh, is that, you know, the way that GDPR is formed, it's very principles based and it's very contextual as well. So, for instance, data, personal data in GDPR is defined as being data that may be used to identify or data that can identify a living individual. And so obviously that changes depending on the context. It's not as simple as just saying it's your name or your address or something like that. So with the California Consumer Privacy Act, which has come in fairly recently, has that taken a similar approach? Because that kind of pushes back against that desire for uh, dashboards and simple tech solutions, doesn't it? It did take a very similar approach. Um, it really gets lumped in quite often with GDPR, mm. where even in California, you don't hear people talking about the CCPA. They, you hear them talking about the GDPR. That's the overarching one. If you think privacy regulation, you think GDPR. So it, it's a pretty similar approach at the end of the day. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. So F Philip, one of the challenges I think that sort of these attempts of, of CCPA or GDPR or whatever have in terms of using principles to regulate ethics or enforce ethics, if, if you like, or at least ethical behavior, is that they can come out with a an approach to data protection. We all want data protected, so we say this is how we protect data. But yet there are broader ethical issues that we want to see, like fairness, for example, which 
we can't even agree amongst ourselves what we mean by fairness. Um, how are you aware of any any approaches or how people are trying to begin to tackle some of those sort of more philosophical areas when it comes to um, when it comes to operationalizing this stuff? Well, if you talk about digital technologies, for a long time, we haven't really had um, uh, ethics guidelines for uh, digital technologies that, that were embraced by uh, governments or, or, or companies. Uh, everybody was kind of doing that by their own, perhaps, but um, that ha has kind of changed with AI, that in the last couple of years, uh, 2019, 2020, uh, all these uh, countries and international organizations ha have developed um, ethics guidelines for AI. Uh, European Union, uh, IEEE, uh, UNESCO, uh, OECD, they've all come with quite similar, frankly, quite similar ethics guidelines for AI that go beyond uh, privacy uh, and security to also address um, fairness, to address uh, even uh, well-being, the environment, um, the quality of society. So, so quite quite broad, ethically speaking. And I think that's a very positive development because that starts to radiate radiate to uh, um, digital technology in, in general, right? So AI ethics kind of becomes a role model, I think for uh, uh, ethics of digital technologies more, more generally. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's an important step to have broad, a broad set of ethical guidelines uh, that go beyond privacy and security. Then of course, the next question is, well, how do you implement that? And there, uh, a lot is still to be gained, I think, because um, often organizations stop uh, when they have the guidelines, they think, okay, everybody should know the guidelines and, and then we're done. Or, or maybe we have some kind of simple implementation tool as the European Commission, for example, tried to do. They tried to kind of um, have their general principles and then uh, a more kind of detailed set of uh, instructions. But it's not even clear for whom exactly these instructions are and under how and under what conditions they should be applied. So, so much work still to be done, I think, uh, with implementation. Yeah, yeah, very challenging. Letitia, how about your, your experience in that field? Um, yeah, I, I suppose coming from someone who's always had to deal with this really practically and operationally, I have a bit of a controversial point to make. Because um, I think, actually, um, to make things happen, and I know maybe I've spent too much time in big business, Essentially, you need to look at the issue, where the power, the control, and the money and the incentives are. And I know we would like to say everyone wants ethics to happen anyway, but sometimes to make people do things the right way or make organizations and operations and technology come, come out the right way, you need to follow that trend. Now, I say that because if you were to take something like GDPR as an example of how to quote-unquote operationalize ethics for digital technology or otherwise um, it's by no means perfect but it is a good um, method in the sense that you look at the linchpins who could be the change agents in your society to actually force or start making the ethics operational and that largely fell on quote unquote the big companies it may not have been well great well defined but it did and then you articulate essentially in that say what you want them or what they need to adhere to um, and it may not be so regulatory but more about the spirit behind that which is why it takes time for the law to roll out and people to really think what does this mean etc etc and then you've got the incentives or I guess it was the financial penalties you can say and you can argue maybe they weren't big enough for some companies or whatever but the bottom line is you're trying to change behavior or in the in the in the key elements of a society who could be the biggest change agents to start you know making that change happen um, and i think 
that's what I see in terms of the best efforts of operationalizing ethics. And I take it back to the sort of mobile money example, but you've got to take it at all levels of the society. So it may be the organizations developing this, the technology, but it may also be uh, the public sector. You've got that policy framework, but that needs to be effective, not just a piece of paper on a shelf passed by parliament. Um, and then whatever legislation needs to actually make the technology being built uh, build in principles along the way. And that may take some time as the change agents or whoever you've identified um, need to put it through, but they then have to work it in either their processes or the systems or the design or whatever for the technology. Mm. Um, the only thing that maybe sometimes is forgotten, which needs more work, is everyone to actually articulate what's the outcome we want before we do all that. Yeah, because um, sometimes that's not clear. So you have all this activity, whether it's policy frameworks and ethics and principles, but clearly articulating what is the outcome we want to see either in this area of digital technology, in this part of society, whatever, is not necessarily clearly articulated before all the activity happens. And I, I want to dig into this, if I may, Kevin, because um, mm -hmm. articulating. Uh, <clears throat> It could be a one-way message or it could be a conversation. And I'm wondering how users of technology can become part of that discussion. Uh, how do they articulate what they want? Um, perhaps it's through the pocketbook, telling vendors what they want to buy or not. Perhaps it's through voting, telling politicians what, uh, what they want to have done to them, for them, uh, by them. Uh, I guess my question is, how, how do we engage all the different parties to have that conversation? Because I feel like we, we've just with everything with technology, we, ha we have this abstraction layer over what's presented to people and what's actually happening underneath. And it, it can be very confusing if, if not uh, misunderstood and misleading and perhaps in some cases. I don't know who wants to wants to run with that. Okay, I'm going to add to that. Add to it, Mark. <laughs> because I've been thinking that, you know, one of the the example I use a lot is, uh, you know, the Ford, uh, when it came out with a car and it was like, you know, people wouldn't need, they need a, if they ask people what they want, they want a faster horse. So I'm giving them what they really want. And I think that technology and business is full of this example. So we probably assume way too much at the top or whomever make the technology and the decision that we that users don't know what they want. So I would think that by now a, a good practice of ethics will be to actually give that voice to these people. So I guess I'm adding to Sean's point to hear your opinion on, on this. How do we bring the actual earthlings into this conversation. Not, can, I, can I bring up the, all the both no, social no, media no, platforms? I'm, I'm just going to bring this up because there are two social media platforms. Both have been plagued with questionable uh, activities, right? How they how they run their business. And I've seen it twice. One didn't pan out. We're going to see how this most recent one pans out where people say, I'm done, right? I'm not going to use that platform anymore. People are still using the first platform. I'm not going to name it. And the other one is up for... Uh, for a uh, question at the moment. Mm. So do we just roll over <laughs> as well? Uh, do, do we have a voice and, or do we just say we, we're going to stick it out because we need that technology? So there's a sort of question there, isn't there, about democratization of technology. How do we, how do we engage with stakeholders? How do we, how, how do the companies involved bring them along? But also find out what the harms are, how to um, how to ensure that the technology is not going to harm people. And I think it's sometimes it's only by engaging with the stakeholders that you find out what those harms might be. Um, and and yes, ultimately, as you say, there is that that question perhaps of democracy. Uh, Olivia, how are you sort of seeing that in uh, in your world? Yeah, I mean, I've got two points here. The first is we as users need to have a backbone. We're not passive people. We're not passive agents in our re relationships with our technology. We have control. Um, I think 
to date, it's been much more of our technology is happening and we're out of control. Whereas, Sean, as you were saying, we can vote with our pocketbooks. We can vote with, with uh, our usage. If there are no users for a piece of technology, there is no technology. Um, but we need to understand that we do have that power and we do have that agency. As a user, you have to be a conscious user, though. It's not just technology is happening to me. It's I am choosing to engage with this technology. But with that, there also needs to be a layer of education. So one of the biggest problems I see and one of the biggest breakdowns in that user feedback and that communication is a lack of understanding on the user's end what the technology actually does. And now I don't even mean like, oh, it's too, it's, uh, I don't understand what's behind the curtain for, of this company. Like, I don't understand what algorithms are at work. It's literally down to, I don't come from a technology background. It's AI, it's math, I don't know. And that, that passive stepping back of, I can't understand this. It's also this, uh, not toxic, that's the wrong word, but um, almost in, in, in not in breathing, but <laughs> apologies. My my I, my sinuses are blocked, which also means my ability to to my command over the English language escapes me sometimes. Um, but it's this approach of technologists or engineers where they don't want to explain their work, where they're like, "It's too complicated. You won't understand." That's a lie. If you can't un if you can't un explain what your algorithm is doing or what your technology is doing, you don't understand what it is. If you can't yep. sit down and talk to my grandma and let her know what what it's doing, and granted, I know she's a difficult audience, but if you can't talk there and explain to her on a basic level what's what she's engaging with, then you yourself do not understand your technology. So it's a, it's a two way street um, yep. that we really need to rebuild that line of communication in. I think there was a great quote from Richard Feynman some years ago along those lines, wasn't there? If you didn't understand the physics then, or you, if you weren't able to teach the physics to a first year undergraduate, then you clearly didn't understand it yourself, some, something along those lines. Philip, I know you've been doing a lot of work, you know, I mean, you're, you're, you very humbly didn't mention the fact that you're heading up a very large uh, piece of research right now with numerous people, multi-millions, um, which for a university is no small feat, in socially disruptive technologies. So what are you sort of seeing in that in that world, in that research, regarding this engagement with stakeholders? You know, are you seeing the same thing that Olivia is talking about of people, of this sort of divide between the technologists at the one hand, one hand saying, I, I'm unable to share this information with you, while the people are saying, throwing up their hands and saying, well, I don't understand it? Or are you seeing more sort of bridging of that divide? Yeah, well, for, in my research, what's part of it is um, uh, models for uh, engaging stakeholders, right? So how do you engage stakeholders successfully at different stages in the development uh, of new technology as well as in the deployment and use of new technology so, so that they have a voice? Um, so th that's, that's part of what you need to do, because without um, stakeholder engagement, you can have ethics, but then ethics, it, it becomes something that, that um, the um, technology developers do amongst themselves, uh, maybe with an ethicist system involved, but, but you're missing the stakeholders um, that may have their own thoughts and their own wishes and their own particular values that they want to express. So uh, uh, talking about technology development, uh, we advocate um, technology development processes where uh, stakeholders are engaged early on. Already in the formulation of um, the, um, the design objectives, uh, the requirements, you, you want the stakeholders engaged and kind of telling them what's important for them and what, what should be taken into account uh, as requirements or, or how the objectives uh, of, of um, particular design don't work for them or, or, or should be changed. So, so that's, that's important. And then also at, at a later stage when, when there's um, testing of prototypes, you, you want to engage uh, stakeholders. And then also for the deployment and use process. So often you have, um, I mean, we're, we, we have been talking, I think, implicitly about uh, technology for the consumer market, but a lot of this technology is, for, uh, is going to be deployed and used by organizations. So it's the, it's the employees uh, of those organizations using that technology. And there also, you want, you want the stakeholders engaged in those organizations as they deploy the technology 
to make sure that that uh, all uh, considerations are heard. So we've been developing both for um, development of new technology as well as deployment and use of technology, ethics approaches, um, ethics by design, and ethics of deployment and use that also involve stakeholders. Excellent, thank you. Um, and I was going to ask about processes. I, I'm actually going to stick with you because you use that magical term ethics by design. Um, so, you know, it, it's something which Letitia talked about as well with, with topping and tailing and saying, yes, we want to we want to have the right requirements. We want to make sure the goal is correct. But we've also got to do everything in between as well. And that's something you, you've just said there, too, as well, Philip, with, with how do we get the process in there? So can you talk a little bit about what I let me step back here. I find the term ethics by design being flung around rather a lot at the moment. And as I speak to some people who use it, it strikes me that they're not really sure what it means. So would you be able to give a very nice, concise definition about what you mean by ethics by design? Sure, ethics by design begins with the assumption that technology is not neutral, right? So techno uh, sophisticated technology, it's, it's not like a hammer, like you can do anything with it. It is designed for very specific tasks. And within that, those constraints, um, uh, the technology has certain implicit choices built in, choices about whether to promote privacy, for example, or, 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 or not promote it, uh, to, to, to have built in security or not, to, to be fair to different stakeholders or, or not in the way it processes uh, and represents information. So these are all implicit choices already in the technology that have ethical consequences. So ethics by design takes that assumption and then says, so how can we use that uh, fact in a good way? How can we design for uh, moral values? Uh, make sure that the privacy, uh, the security, the fairness is built in as much as we can. Of course, how the system is going to be used is going to make a difference, but we can already do a lot um, in making the technology ethical by design. And ethics by design is then a, a detailed methodology where at different steps in the design process, you take into account uh, different ethical issues and have procedures for implementing them in those different design phases. Now, I want to take this and maybe Letitia and Olivia may have some as well. Your, your thoughts on what I'll call legacy systems. So our, our past has been defined and we're well entrenched in it. And I can turn to, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply involved in cybersecurity. I can look at industrial control systems and SCADA systems more specifically that were designed to not be connected to the internet. Once they are, they expose a bunch of vulnerabilities and weaknesses that can be exploited. Um, I, I think about this in the context of digital ethics and infrastructure, the way we use technology, the way that, that organizations and, and other stakeholders interact with each other on these legacy systems. If we focus on ethical AI as the only thing, I'm not saying we're only looking at that, but if that's our holy grail of solving this problem, how, how do we overcome some of the challenges that we that we have with the legacy environment that we've that we've built upon actually let me first move because my battery's on empty <laughs> while you're walking philip letitia or olivia do you want yeah. to take that one up about dealing with legacy systems um yeah i mean i think if i if i look at it from a practical operational perspective especially as having seen um basically new technology having to be rolled out on top of <laughs> a legacy or in addition to um, alongside. And I think banks are probably a good example of that, of that together with uh, central banking systems. Um, the, the, the challenge is to try and get the best of the both worlds, um, if possible. And it, it does, but it does take a significant amount of work and design. Um, so if you're, you're looking at basically the digital elements and the AI elements and working with the model that you that has been articulated in terms of um, ethics by design, if you at least have the 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 um, interventions in the design, the analysis, the build, or maybe the testing phase 
for the, the new digital element and the outcomes that it's supposed to deliver, um, then it's about creating that, that middle layer, which will basically um, kick the existing legacy technology to touch, <laughs> as it were. And I know, I mean, people will go into middleware, et cetera, but um, you, you take the, the, the principles and the outcomes that you want from the new digital technology, with the ethics built in, um, and then basically layer it on top. But it it is it is a big it is it is a big challenge because you for many organisations with that legacy you can't just scrap it um, because the new digital technology does not fulfil usually all the outcomes and give all the services or whatever that you need. I want to drop another example in here. Um, the the idea and. I don't know if it's, I don't know how to describe this exactly, but th this concept of owning our own data, right? Mm. Where perhaps this, and you use the word middleware, Letitia, and that's what kind of triggered this, this idea that there's this middleware layer that we control as yeah. individuals that say, regardless of what's connecting above or below, new or old, I control mm -hmm. this. And I'm wondering, is there something like that for ethics, where th this is the eth ethical sphere that I, I want to live within, and anybody that's connecting with me uh, will either follow them or I'll, I'll block where they're not. Is that my out of, out of this world on that? <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, maybe I'm reading too much about the simulation hypothesis right now, and I think I can open an entire can on that. <laughs> but I feel like it's it's not even a matter at this point of, you know, legacy system is about legacy culture, <laughs> you know, the legacy in, in our humanity and how we're trying to maybe erase our culture. I don't know, Kevin, is that too much here? At the, you, you can stop me anytime. And <laughs> so erase, erasing culture starts to make it sound a little bit min a bit sinister. No, I didn't mean that. <laughs> uh, re exactly. Reboot or I don't know. <laughs> reboot. Di direct directing where we would like culture to be. Certainly <laughs> recognizing past mistakes and working with those. Absolutely. And and I think you're you know you're quite right. Those legacy systems do carry over, and we've seen this with bias, haven't we? All over the place that legacy systems carry bias with them into the present in a way that we don't want them to do and and i i think that you know i'm kind of conscious of the fact we don't have long left so what, what i wanted to sort of do and this might be a good trigger point for that is just ask e each of you as panelists if you could summarize where you think we need to go next what it, you know we've talked about a variety of things whether it is legacy systems or stakeholder engagement or getting ethics through the design process, each of these are still, they still feel quite nascent um, in terms of actual hard practice on the ground. So my question for you as we, as we come to a close is, what, what next? What do we focus on? Where do we go, in your opinion, um, with this, this approach to trying to operationalize ethics, operationalize, as Marco said, where we want society to go? So no, no small question to finish on. Right? <laughs> left at the um, edge, left at the yeah. edge. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I'll have a go. I mean, because I think for me, it's um, it really is about getting the, the full map of the stakeholders and enabling them to actually have the input to, to determine the ethical outcome that you want from whatever technology, whatever product, whatever process, whatever service. Um, and that isn't done, and, and and I think that maybe comes back to what we discussed earlier about the differences between the Silicon Valley approach or whatever, and the European approach, and the different, you know, African context. Um, in developing these technologies, first things first is the importance of identifying who are the stakeholders, everyone who is likely to be impacted or use it or receive it or be somehow affected by it and making sure that there is enough representation of those stakeholder groups in the definitely the design and the analysis maybe you might scale it down at the testing phase whatever but definitely at the design and the analysis and the conception phase um, all those need to be represented and in doing that I think you will also then um, and coming back to the 
what I was picked up on, be able to more effectively articulate what are the outcomes we want. Because it won't just be one. If you've got the most appropriate representation, then actually there will be a number of ethical outcomes based on different contexts and scenarios that you'll need. Um, and then you go into the literally the, 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 the build and the test um, and the rollout for whatever technology but for me it's about getting the full range of stakeholders in and that's not just about representation or or race or diversity i do think it's also about cultural context it's about um economies and perspectives as well brilliant yeah. thank you thank you i uh, agree with the um, stakeholder engagement <laughs> um and, and I would add to that uh, operationalization of ethics is very important uh, for the development process, ethics by design, for the deployment and use process. We have developed ethics of deployment and use, that is how to implement within an organization the ethical deployment and use of AI systems uh, or other digital technologies. So we, we developed detailed approaches for that. Um, uh, we did that in European projects, uh, Shena project, Sherpa project. And um, now ethics by design for AI is, is part of the um, uh, Horizon Europe uh, ethics assessment scheme of the European Commission. So all AI projects uh, have to go through uh, AI ethics review and uh, they have the, an option of them using ethics by design as an approach in, in their um, research and we have done the same for ethics of deployment and use and as a third point i would say that uh, we need an integral approach where both uh, ethics guidelines the, their operationalization in terms of um, ethics by design and ethics of deployment and use stakeholders then also, um, of course, regulation. So the uh, AI Act uh, of the European Commission, for example, in, in EU is, I think, very powerful in uh, addressing some the more severe ethical issues that may uh, turn up in AI projects and, and development processes. And uh, finally, also um, standards and certification. Uh, uh, ISO and uh, the European equivalent, SEN, they are developing uh, standards for uh, trustworthy, ethical, responsible AI. And those could also have a, a major role in the industry. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks, Philip. Uh, Olivia, last word to you. <laughs> well, Kevin, I know you said you wanted details. Um, <laughs> and I would say don't go details straight away. I'm speaking from the perspective of I'm a company and I want to start embedding ethics. I want to start really what is an entire organizational change that needs to occur. Don't go straight to the details. Don't look at the minutia of what kind of data you're bringing in to this exact model with this exact result you're missing the bigger picture. What you need to do first and foremost is actually have a strategy about how you're mm -hmm. going to go about that change. As, as Letitia was saying, what outcomes do you want, not only on a technical level, but on an organizational level? You really need to come in and look at, okay, what elements do we need? How are our people trained? What kind of governance and frameworks do we need in place? What decisions are we making around our technology in the first place? You need that big picture roadmap to be able to understand all of the teeny details and elements that need to, to go into that. Um, and if that seems too much to handle and a little bit overwhelming to say, okay, get, get this entire strategy in place, then I'd say the first step to do is put someone in charge of an ethical or responsible AI, whatever you want to call it, initiative and give them a budget. There are plenty of resources out there. There are plenty of companies that work in this space. Give them a budget and hold them accountable and see what they do. There's a lot that can be done if you just put someone in charge with money to be able to deploy. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Really good points. And it's interesting, Kevin. I, I, I've heard the word responsible a few times, I think from all three folks. And, mm -hmm. and I think one of, the, one of the things that strikes me is that I think collectively we need to be responsible. Um, but I, I feel we have a ways to go before we understand who's responsible for what. <laughs> so so I, I think a lot, and it goes back to the earlier point of communication, right? Uh, describing what it is, what the outcomes are, how we're going to do it, and, 
and that, that whole definition yeah. and conversation yeah. surrounding all of this, I think some of that stuff will, will start to bubble up to the top. I think that there's some interesting history we could look at there from engineering more broadly and responsibility, things like the development of the automobile uh, and seeing how in the early days it was very exciting, a very new process and people sort of leapt into it. And it was really only in the 60s and 70s that safety started to become an issue for conversation and the idea of responsible design of, of the automobile the automobile and I, and I think we're probably going through something fairly similar right now with digital technology as well that we've become aware much more aware in the last 15 20 years i think of the harms that technology can bring alongside the benefits that it's obviously bringing society um and that that notion as you say of responsible development starts to really enter the picture and think about how much there is in in the we right? Like we means then there is others. So who is we, right? You know, all of you. So who is we? Who take the initiative? And who are we to tell? Do we others? care about the others, Marco? I don't know. Well, I kind of do. That's why I call this the other society. You know, there is a reason for it. But, but what it makes me think about is this, and I, this is my last, uh, you know, words about this is, I think about the global village, you know, the good old Marshall McLuhan and how I think we're discovering now that, yeah, we're all connected, but we're still and we should be all different in within this global village. And, and we cannot go and tell others what they need. And by others, I mean different culture. We need to respect those. And I may be going even too far right now, but I think that what we're seeing with the bird and the extinct and mammoth uh, mastodon, um, I think there is a message there. We'll, we'll see what happens. Sean kind of mentioned that without you know, making a name, but I think that's where people are kind of taking control. We'll see what happens, but the message is there to recreate certain community versus an algorithm that is telling you this is what you're going to see today. Um, yep. maybe a lot of topics for other conversation here. <laughs> we'll have many more, Marco. And I, I think, I think the point of all of this and the, the main point of the other society is we, and I think everybody mentioned it today as well. We, we have the power to define what we want. We can control this. We can, we can bring us where we want to go. Um, but we have to think meaningfully about that, um, and define what it is, the outcomes that we want. So with that, um, Kevin, thanks for uh, bringing a great conversation together. Letitia, Olivia, Philip, thanks for, uh, for bringing your insights and uh, getting us to think. Marco, thanks for uh, giving me a, a nice face to, uh, to view throughout this conversation. <laughs> and uh, for everybody listening, there will be links to uh, resources that our, that our guests want to provide, research they've done, articles they've read, articles they've written, perhaps even. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, obviously many more conversations already recorded, many more to come, and a gazillion more topics on their way here on The Other Society on ITSP Magazine. So thanks everybody for listening and watching. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Other Society. If you learned something new and this discussion made you think, then share ITSBmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.